0: This morning, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. We want to keep working through this section of the book. We're going to be in chapter 2, and this morning we're going to cover the first three verses. And one of the things that we're seeing from Solomon, we've said this a couple times, but let me just point it again. It's a depressing section of the book because Solomon is trying to convince you to be disillusioned with anything in this life outside of Jesus Christ, outside of God outside of a fellowship with him, a daily fellowship with him. And so what we pick up is right in the middle of what we call the dead-end streets. There's seven of them. We'll look at those again. But, you know, imagine walking down a street and reaching a dead-end. What do you typically have to do? Well, you have to typically take a U-turn. But then imagine taking another turn and thinking, okay, this is my way out, and you hit another dead-end street. And you have to take another U-turn, and you make another turn, and you hit another dead-end street. And that's kind of what Solomon is doing here in the beginning of this book. He's going through these dead-end streets. But when we get into chapter 2, he takes kind of an interesting turn here because what he's going to do is he's going to he's going to intentionally investigate personal pleasure. He's going to intentionally look at personal pleasure as the saddest, as a solution for meaning and purpose in life. Personal pleasure. And and so He's going to ask the question: What gain is there, or what profit, if I just pursue pleasure wholeheartedly, reckless abandon? Will I find lasting meaning and purpose in life if I do that? That's what we're going to read about this morning. He's going to talk about how he does that. Now, one of the things that we learn about pleasure, as a general uh, general comment, pleasure is is a dual-edged sword, if you want to say it that way. Because it leads to generally frustration or boredom. You say, well, wait a minute. Not while you're having pleasure. And that's the point. It's temporary. While you're having pleasure, it could be pleasurable. But then the after effects is either frustration or boredom. Because it provides satisfaction only during the moment in which you're experiencing the pleasure, not beyond it. And then if you taste pleasure in something... You're soon bored and you need a new stimuli or a higher, greater stimuli to achieve the same amount of pleasure that you, re- you achieved the first time around. And it, and it never stops. It's like eating a potato chip, right? Remember the old slogan? I can't just eat one. Remember that? I could relate to that as an 18-year-old. When that came out, I was like, you are right. I sit down with a bag of potato chips and like, look out. I don't know if there's going to be any left for anybody else. And you know, that's how pleasure is. One is not going to satisfy. Two is not going to satisfy. Three is not going to satisfy. What's satisfied before is not going to satisfy in the future. And that's where this frustration or boredom sets in. And then when you can't get it, you're frustrated. See, pleasure is not the answer, the, the be-all, end-all of the purpose of life. That's what Solomon is going to show us in this section. We mentioned the seven dead-end streets. Well, this is what we looked at last week, the philosopher the student. Um, Today we're going to look at the party animal. We're going to look at the alcoholic. Those are the two that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to also, when I get back from Liberia, we're going to look at the workaholic, the aristocrat, the Puritan, and finally the philanthropist. Like I said, we covered those first two last week. We're going to cover these next two, third and fourth dead-end streets this morning, the party animal and the alcoholic. And what Solomon is going to say is this, you know what? I think that I'm going to pursue fun and what makes me happy. And you know what? There are millions, I'd say billions, of people on this planet that subscribe to that philosophy of life. I'm just going to pursue what's fun, and I'm going to pursue what makes me happy. And you know what? The, the primary purpose of their life becomes about being, having fun and being happy. And you know, the problem with that is this. Let's just put a little realism into that philosophy. See, in order to be happy, you have to have perfect circumstances. Now, anybody in here ever lived a day on this earth? Anybody? Anybody? How often do perfect circumstances happen? Not very often. Sometimes that's true. In fact, we spend most of our life, we spend most of our prayer time even trying to clear out uncomfortable circumstances. We spend most of our life trying to prevent or insulate ourselves from unpleasant circumstances. That's what our life is all about a lot of the time if we're honest with ourselves, And see, what that simply does, that mindset toward life simply exposes the fact that you and I at times pursue the same course that Solomon's going to deal with this morning. See, life's all about what makes me happy. Life's all about what's fun. In fact, what do we do with our kids? Oh, I just want my kids to be happy. Trust me, no you don't. That's, that's not the primary goal, goal for raising kids, is to make them happy. In fact, what we're going to see is that Solomon's going to note that when he pursued happiness, he was miserable. The very opposite of what he was pursuing is the very outcome that he received. This is, this is the problem and the deception with this kind of attitude toward life. And so we're going to see that this is exactly what Solomon says, and in fact, I want you to notice something as we read through this section, and I want you to notice this in the first eleven verses. And I just want you to pay attention to this over the course of the next weeks. So we're only going to get through the first three. I want you to notice how many first-person singular pronouns are used in this passage. Okay, what do I mean by first-person singular pronouns? Those are not English grammar majors, right? Um, or, or that hurts your head to even think about I me my i mean my myself i just want you to notice how many times he's using these these terms okay i'm going to tell you my count 41 times in 11 verses 41 times in 11 verses and you know when your purpose in life is to pursue pleasure it is all about you it ain't about anybody else in fact if anyone gets in my way, I'm going to run them over. That's the attitude that we take. And you know, there's another section in scripture. um, Ross joked, we spent four years in Romans. I I haven't even been here four years. So that's a lie. It was more like two and a half. Um, There's another section in Romans where there's a lot of personal pronouns used. We don't have time to turn there this morning, but I want to I mention it to you to recall it to your thinking. Romans 7, verses 14 to 25. Romans 7, verses 14 to 25. And what does that section talk about? It talks about a believer who's trying to sanctify themselves in the power of their own strength. And guess what he does? Fail, 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 fail. Fail. I, me, my is not the Christian life. In fact, what is the Christian life? Galatians 2.20, it's not I, but Christ. It's not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And so right off the bat, when we get into Ecclesiastes 2 and we start seeing I, me, my, myself, we ought to know, whoa, 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 carnal. He's thinking carnally. It's not about being happy. It's not about what makes you happy. It's not about what gives you pleasure. That's not what life is all about. If you pursue that in life, you will be miserable. You will wake up when you're 85 and you will say, I threw it all away because that's not what is, life's all about. That's not purpose. That provides no meaning. He's going to explore that for us in this section. Let's read verse one. Verse one says this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. In fact, this verse, as we look at it, it provides a very good summary for what we're going to read in the first eleven verses. He he tells his heart. He's talking to himself here, if you will. He says, "Come now," and the word "come now" is is a command to himself, meaning, "Let's go for a walk." Let's you might you might say it this way: Let's go for a stroll. Let's take this. Let's try it out. Let's take this for a test drive. Let's take this investigation and let's take these ideas and let's put them to the test and let's walk that path. And you know what? Solomon did just this. This is exactly what he did. I will test you with mirth. And he goes and takes this stroll. In fact, that's the first thing that he says to his heart. He wants to test his heart with mirth, or you might say pleasure. The word test means to put somebody to the test. It means to Give experience to, or it means this, to attempt to learn the true nature of something. Remember, one of the things that Solomon said, and one of the things we can be assured of, is that he didn't engage in this investigation half-heartedly. Remember the the imagery of, of lifting up every rock, and then after lifting up every rock, looking at it from every different angle? That's the type of intense investigation that he put into this. It wasn't a guy that just said, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to Chuck E. Cheese on Saturday. and Let's see how this mirth and pleasure works out. Which, by the way, parents of young kids, that is not a fun day. Okay, that's fun for the kids, not for you. You end up losing a lot of money and digging stuff. Anyways, out of their clothes for for months, you know, so it's just not a good experience. But it, it wasn't just like one day. Let me go try to have fun. This was like, I'm going to devote every second of my day, pursuing this from every different angle. And if you read about the life of Solomon, you see this exactly. He did. He per- I mean, we're getting under the hood. We're getting in his mind as to how he was thinking when he was living out this biographical sketch that we read about in, in, in first Kings and, and, and so on, in those historical books there in the Old Testament. Now, in this case, what is he testing? Well, he's testing his own heart he's going to push this experiment to the limits. There's a, there's a stem in the Hebrew, the PL stem. It's an intensified stem. That's what he uses here. I'm pushing this investigation to the limits. In fact, he's going to pursue pleasure with reckless abandon. We might say nothing's going to hold him back. And when you're the wealthiest person on earth, you're the wisest person on earth. Guess what? Nothing can hold you back. You can get anything you want. Anything you want, anytime you want, any way you want. It's, it was the Burger King of the Old Testament. You just, he got it his way, any way he wanted it. It was his. And that's what he's trying to communicate here. So what's he going to test his heart with? Well, he, he calls it mirth or it's translated mirth. It means joy, gladness, delight, a feeling or attitude of joyful happiness, Or cheerfulness, we might just say he's going to pursue everything he can think of to make himself happy. Whatever he determines will make him happy, that's what he's going for. And he's going to pursue it with reckless abandon. Now, one of the things that we learn from this section is when he tests this joy or happiness, he's going to do it from a human perspective. Notice that he's doing this uh, as things under heaven. In fact, we picked that up. We got to jump down to verse three um, at the very end, but he says, I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. This is that phrase that we see in Ecclesiastes that gives us a connection, a, a hint, that what he's talking about is pursuing happiness apart from God. Where, where God's not even joined or conjoined in his thinking, he's trying to figure it out, life under the sun, life on earth, apart from God. That's when he uses that phrase, under heaven. And so he's going to pursue happiness involving only things that are under heaven. And we're going to see how that works out for him. Many people pursue this very thing. Uh, We talked about this probably, if I had to guess, and I'm not an expert by any means, I would say it's in the billions of people. There's 7 billion people on planet earth. I would guess that this pursuit Of individual human beings is in the billions, saved or unsaved. Saved or unsaved. Because this is a carnal way of thinking. This is exactly the way an unsaved person thinks because they don't have the Spirit of God indwelling them. They don't have a new nature. They haven't been born again or even have the option to think differently. But even saved people who walk according to the flesh will think this way. And that's why many of us have bought more into the American dream than we bought into God's dream for a spiritual believer. We think that success is, is in all the measurables in life. And what we realize is success is not there. Success is measured internally as one is relating rightly with the Lord more consistently today than they were yesterday, and more consistently this moment than I was two moments ago. That's success where you have an internal fellowship with the Lord of the earth, the Lord of the universe. And so many people will pursue this very same thing. Now, one of the things that, that and I love a commentator wrote it this way, happiness is not the main or sole purpose of life. Do you agree with that statement? I, I think that in some groups, you might even have people that don't agree with that statement. They, that think that, Happiness is the sole purpose of your life on earth, that your personal happiness is what it's all about, regardless of anybody else. And you know, I would just ask you to challenge yourself internally in your thinking, have you bought into that? Do you, do you think that way? Well, there's lots of ways that we can be exposed <laughs> with this thinking. What do you think about when you've had a busy day and you come home and what do you think about? What's on your mind? Is it let me serve my spouse or let me find my recliner? Let, let my spouse serve me. What do you think about when you've had a, a difficult relational issue and your friend calls you or a family member calls you are you so bent in sharing how it's going with you that you don't even, you realize maybe a week later? Wow, they called me. I didn't even ask them how they were doing. We talked about me for the entire hour. This is how this exposes is exposed in our life that our thinking is all about ourselves. Our thinking is about on our comfort. Our thinking is about on our happiness. This is how we get exposed. This is how it manifests itself in our life. Well, Solomon. Intentionally pursued this. He he tells us that he intentionally thought, "I'm going to go check this out. I'm going to." And basically, when I get to the end of the road, guys, I'm going to let you know if it's a dead end or hey, we're sailing still. Like this is the way of happiness and enjoyment and purpose in this life. And what he's going to tell us is it's not, guys. Turn around. Don't come down this street. He's passing you on the way out, saying, "Don't, no, no. There's a dead end down there. Don't keep going this way." And the question is, are we going to listen to him? We're going to believe what the Word of God says or not? Or we're just going to keep pursuing it? Well, I'll find it. You know, like, like we've said before, don't, don't have the 18-year-old young man mindset, well, nobody's jumped this fence before, but I'll do it. Nobody's gone this fast and survived, but I can do that. I, I can drive this fast. Nobody survives because there's no brakes on this car. Oh, I'll make the car stop. Don't You know, let's not think that way. Let's just take him at face value and believe what he has to say. You know, the most internally... Miserable people on earth are oftentimes the very people whose focus on happiness is the most extreme. You, you don't believe me? Go give a little kid every toy that they want and tell me how they end up at the end of the day. They're miserable. They're racks. I like there were times in, in our kids life. I just, I just told them no for, the, for their own good, right? For their benefit. And yeah, they might have melted down at that point, but they were were much better two days from then. there's There's a certain type of internal monster that we create that becomes out of control, insatiably lusting for happiness that can never be met when we just pursue what we want, what we want, what we want, what we want. And this is what Solomon is going to tell us. There's no joy in that, you know, and this is one of the reasons why when you're raising kids, and I hate to go there, but we live in a society where we think that raising kids, that all you want for your kids is for them to be happy. Let me challenge you. Think on a higher plane. That, that is not what you want for your kids. That will send them to a state of misery quicker than you know. It's, it's insane because you think if I pursue happiness, they'll get happiness, and here's the problem. That's the wrong road. That's a dead end street. If you pursue the Lord, then you will receive happiness. You see, it's a, it's a byproduct. It's, it's an offshoot of a totally different occupation and focus in life. And you know what? It's okay to tell your kids, no, you cannot eat that. No, you cannot have that toy. No, you cannot go here with this friend. No, you cannot do this. No is a good word for your kids, And you know what? Maybe they aren't happy with you at the time. Who cares? That's not what parenting is about. I, you know what? I tell my kids this all the time. I mention to them, I've already got enough friends. I, I don't need you to be my best friend. I don't need to be your best friend. I'm your father. That's a much higher calling than being a good friend. So I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to invest in you. I'm here to invest truth in you. I'm here to share the gospel with you. I'm here to share the benefits that you have in Christ. You are complete in Christ. Here are the resources you have. I want with all my heart for you, young people, my kids to take advantage of this. I'm not here to make you happy. I'm sorry. I don't know who is promoting that lie. Uh, It's probably every TV show and commercial and movie in the universe. But I'm here to tell you that is a dead end street. That's a dead end street for your kids. That's a dead end street for you. Don't even take them down here. And this is why parents cannot stay out of their kid's life. All they try to do is manipulate circumstances so that their kids will be happy. Well, guess what? The circumstances get more and more challenging and more and more difficult the older they get. And you have less and less control. So you talk about setting yourself up for frustration in life as a parent. Don't train yourself to do that right now. If you've got young people at home, if you've got older people at a house, you know exactly what we're talking about because it gets more complicated. Life becomes more difficult. Circumstances become more out of your control. It's real easy when a coach isn't playing your child and you can go yell at the coach and manipulate him in such a way that he starts playing your child. That's easy. You can manipulate a teacher that doesn't give your child a good grade. That's easy. You can do all of these things. You can even step into situations where these three kids are not treating your kid okay. So I'm going to go lecture these three kids. That's easy. But you know what? Why not teach them how to deal with trials instead of fixing all their circumstances? That might actually go somewhere. That actually might be an investment that pays returns and yet it's trying to clear out the way. You are not Moses in the Red Sea of circumstances for your child right? We're not trying to split this thing for them. So they have, they're going through on dry ground. That's not the goal of parenting. That's not the goal of life either. In fact, what produces spiritual growth when it comes to trials? Those of you that know the passages in the Bible that talk about dealing with trials, really fascinating word. And I know it's, it's, it's the P word. It's a bad P word. It's patience, right? They always, you always joke like, don't pray for patience. You might, you know, get run over by a truck or something, you know, but, but patience and patience simply means this to remain under. That's all it means. Learning patience in trials will grow you spiritually because you're forced to depend on the Lord in ways that you would never depend on Him if you didn't have those circumstances. And see, notice all, uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm criticizing myself here. This isn't a criticism of anybody else. Trust me. I got, if I'm pointing one out, four, you've heard that, right? Four coming back. Um, here's the deal with trials most of our prayer requests involve, Lord, move the trial. The, the very thing that God wants to do in a trial is to keep you under so that he can bring you through. You're praying for him to remove it so you can get out of it. Isn't that ironic? Isn't, it, isn't that subtle? It, it should just show you if, that, if, if that's the natural prayer request, do the opposite. <laughs> natural is not always good. Natural many times in, this, in the Christian life is carnal. If you're gravitating toward that, we need a different mindset, you know, and so many people pursue happiness as this end goal. By the way, for those who are caught up in this pursuit, pay close attention. It doesn't end well. This, we've been kind of saying this, I've been saying this a couple different ways this morning, but it doesn't end well. This, he's trying to warn us, turn around, roads out ahead. It's a dead end. Just, just turn around. Don't go and pursue this route and so he says, Enjoy to to his heart, he says, Enjoy what you perceive as good or pleasurable. Just do it. Have it your own way. In other words, nothing could stop him. Solomon is going to really examine all the mechanics of things that make him happy. We're going to get some more details on that as we work through the 11 verses. But we're going to see that Solomon practiced this throughout his kingdom. In fact, real briefly, just turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 4. I just want to give you a small example of Solomon's pursuit of this and to put it in perspective for you. Remember how we said Solomon, it was the PL stem, he pursued it with reckless abandon. He went to the limits. Let me just read you an example of this in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 20 through 23. Says this: Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. And so Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute. And serve Solomon all the days of his life. Now, Solomon, Solomon's provision for one day. Now, what I'm about to read to you, it's not going to make any sense. I'm going to put it in perspective here. But I just want you to pay attention. This is his provision for one day. <laughs> one day, okay? So, let's read through it. For one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from, from the pastures, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. Now, anybody ever, I'm from Texas, so I've had a, a slaughtered cow in my freezer. Anybody know how much meat that provides? It's a lot. In fact, we split, Carrie's folks and I and a couple of her siblings split a cow one time in force, and I didn't even have enough room for it in one freezer, that's how much meat. We had meat for the entire year. You're like hamburger helper and I just, I mean, steak and I mean anything you wanted. That was a fourth of a cow. And it wasn't even a big cow. It was a small cow. I mean, it was, it was famine time, and time. It wasn't raining at all. I mean, these were skinny cows, right? And that was a fourth of a cow. I want you to put this in perspective. Some estimates when you take in all this food, it would have taken 30 or 40,000 people to consume that much food in one day, 30 to 40,000 people to consume that much food in one day. And so you can see his plan. Hey, let's just enjoy it. You you know, you want, you want uh, a lamb chop? (sighs) Give me three of those bad boys, right? You want filet mignon? Well, I guess he couldn't, he couldn't have the the bacon part, but he could have, you know, maybe the the steak, right? Um, and, and, And he just, they just filled themselves. That was just one example with food of, of seeking pleasure. And so you kind of get this picture. But notice what he says at the end of verse 1. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. What's the result? More mog more more fog or mist, mog. More fog or mist. Remember, vanity just means that that mist. You're you're trying to to grab this mist and get your your arms around it. He he can't make sense of this. So this also was vanity. And, And not only is it vanity, but he uses this word, but surely. See that that kind of that transition? He says, but surely. And it's it's in the Hebrew what's called a demonstrative interjection. It's like putting an exclamation point on this phrase what he means by this is it was not just kind of vanity. This was vanity off the charts. This, this didn't provide the meaning. In fact, it was so off the beaten path. It was off the charts vanity. This didn't provide any meaning or substance at all. That's his conclusion to this type of approach <clears throat> to life. In fact, only to pursue what you want to uh, and what you enjoy as pleasurable is vanity. If again if that's your mindset happiness at all costs it's vanity the the, the mo- in that moment it's going to seem good it's going to seem like what you need i mean who doesn't want to rest in their recliner who doesn't want to take a hot bath who doesn't want a massage who doesn't want a vacation who doesn't want this who doesn't want that who doesn't want something that's designed to make you happy as the sole purpose of life. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. The point is this, is if you try to find pleasure, meaning, lasting value in those things apart from God, you're not going to find it. That's the point. That's the deception of the way we live our life when we pursue happiness. And so, as I mentioned before, you, you pursue pleasure not by pursuing pleasure. You pursue pleasure by pursuing God. And then as you're in fellowship with God... You, you obtain those pleasures. You actually can enjoy all of those things much more fully than you ever have before. In fact, a pursuit of pleasure will not result in a fulfilled life or give you a grasp on the meaning of life. It's hollow, it's lacking meaning and true substance. And this is what we have to convince ourselves of. We can't leave here today and say, Yeah, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, he was kind of right on some things, but he no, no, no. Solomon was right. Trust me, he's right. This is not something that you want to try to figure out on your own. Learn from other people's mistakes so that you don't have to make your own. This is not where it's at in life, and Solomon is trying to warn us. Now, the second comment he makes to his heart is this. He says, total madness. You you see that there in verse two. I said of laughter, madness, uh, and of mirth, what does it Accomplish, And so here's our second thing that he says to his heart, madness and of mirth, what does it accomplish? And so what does this word madness mean? Well, he speaks of laughter. Solomon speaks of laughter as something that's gained in the sense of fulfilling your own perspective of pleasure. You know, and, and isn't that many times when people pursue happiness, isn't that part of that package, a lot of laughing? Ha, ha, ha. And then have you ever laughed so much that your cheeks hurt and you, you actually just internally go, why am I even laughing? This is so dumb. This is so meaningless. Why can I not stop laughing? I, I've had that. Maybe I'm the only one, mad, but I've had that experience, right? We're just laughing so much and you realize deep down you're hurting. You're not, you're not enjoying yourself. This isn't fun. In fact, this is just total madness, this is total madness to think that this is the purpose and meaning of life. Whatever it is that's making me laugh so much. And so he refers to it as madness or foolishness. Um, the word means to make a mockery of something or someone, implying a lack of respect. And one of the things that's really interesting about the word madness is it? It's used in a very unique stem in the Hebrew. It's the poal stem, and it's it, it describes the result brought upon somebody via laughter. It's a passive verb that describes cause. Okay, so in other words, this is what causes it. And so many people, uh, as I mentioned, laugh while crying inside, and laughter is not the answer. That's the whole point of this. Laughter is not the answer. In fact. Laughter causes madness. Laughter actually causes a a lack of pleasure, is kind of the point that he's saying. It can lead to this um, lack of madness. And you know, one of the things that we know from life is laughter is not the answer to meaning. If it was, every comedian on the face of the earth would be happy. How many comedians have you known? Famous comedians, not famous comedians who are not happy? who are bitter, who are upset, who hold grudges against people. I think of a, real, uh, a couple of popular ones, but you know, Robin Williams, recent years, committed suicide. How many, how many men did that guy make laugh? You see, you watch his interviews, before you'd have had no clue what he was going through. Laughing, joking, funny, quick, quick-witted with people. Would have never known. John Belushi, remember him years ago? Destroyed himself with drugs and alcohol. Chris Farley, all these, these comedians in our time. Laughter doesn't make you happy. Laughter doesn't provide meaning in life. Now, is laughter bad, therefore? No, laughter's good. When what? Joined up to the Lord. Enjoying what the Lord enjoys. That's what we're talking about. And so this is what Solomon is, is, is recognizing Laughter is not the answer. In in fact, it in and of itself is total madness. It doesn't describe anything of lasting value. Then he he has a third comment for his heart. And it's this, I said of mirth, what does it accomplish? What does mirth, he said, what does it actually do? What What does happiness actually provide for you? And you know, what does it bring about? What does it get done? Well, it's a rhetorical question, which begs the answer, nothing. That's the, that's the answer he's hoping you'll, you'll answer or realize. It doesn't do anything for you. Happiness and just the pursuit of happiness. And I realize, what does our Declaration of Independence say? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But they kind of had it right because what was the first line to that? That we've been endowed by our creator with these inalienable rights. Those, those are gifts from our creator, So we try to take them away from the creator. Then it it lacks meaning. All of a sudden, it doesn't accomplish its end goal. When it's tied to the creator, it accomplishes much. And so mirth and happiness, laughter are not the goal of our lives. It's not going to provide meaning. Um, And and you know, one of the things that's interesting is is you can be assured that Solomon, while he was engaged in all this, was having some level of fun. See, we're we're not saying that pursuit of pleasure doesn't result in some pleasure. Don't mishear me, it does. Sometimes sin is fun. Now I know that's not a good thing to preach, right? But but let's be honest, that's why we do it. There's a level of enjoyment that we get out of it. The problem is we don't see the strings attached generally to it. That's our problem. Because sin always has a consequence. What's the consequence of sin? Death. Death. Now Praise God, we don't have to face the eternal death that Jesus died for us and took upon himself. We'll never have to face that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. But you can face death in your life, you can face a death like existence. This may explain why relationships in your life are torn apart, that you leave a wake, a destructive wake, everywhere you touch and every person you come in contact with. It might be a result of sin. There's a consequence to sin. It it comes in, in ways that we can't even explain irritation, agitation, uh, you know, anger towards somebody that doesn't even deserve it. Right? Hey, can you take the trash out? I'm tired of you. Whoa. (laughs) I didn't know trash was like that important to you. Hey, can you, when you put your dish near the sink, can you just put it into the sink like six inches, move it over? I can't believe you are so ungrateful what? It's a dish in the sink. Like what? Why are you exploding? Well, it's because you're walking according to the flesh. There's consequences for that. That's why you're so irritated about a, can I say a stupid cup on the stupid counter that goes into the stupid sink? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is you're carnal. That's the big deal. When you're carnal, life gets overwhelming really quickly. Life's not overwhelming. That's a cup. That's a counter. That's the sink. Hey, Easy. Give me something hard. That's like two plus two. If you're getting overwhelmed by two plus two in life, it's just, it just reveals that you're carnal. It reveals that you're not resting in the Lord. Those are the kind of things that expose the way that we're thinking. You know, one of the things that um, we can see about mirth and happiness, you can enjoy pleasure and laugh all you want. The point is this when it comes to grasping the true meaning of life and feeling like you've got gotten purpose and meaning it won't be there for you. That's the whole point. Dead end street, turn around, flip around quickly. And so um, as we get into verse three, we wanna look at some specifics now. He's gonna give us a very specific investigation that he gives and it involves um, alcohol. Verse three says this, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see uh, what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. And so this is his first search. And, we, and he says he's going to search in his heart how to gratify his flesh with wine. Okay, so a very specific search now as it relates to mirth, happiness, and he's going to do it through alcohol. You know, many people approach life this way. This is where they're looking for true meaning and happiness and fun as in this type of a lifestyle. This word search we've seen before in, in chapter one, verse 13, it means to, to investigate on all sides, to look at something from every angle. And so he's going to search every angle to see if wine can meet the lasting satisfaction of his soul. That's what he's going to do. He's going to search it out on every angle. Remember this word means to travel by foot, to investigate over a lot, you know, long distances and really figure this thing out. And that's what he's talking about. The contrast in verse uh, 13 of chapter one, he was taking a careful analysis of life in the whole world. Remember in ver- chapter one, verse 13, he says, I've set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that has done under heaven. So now he's, now he's going very specific and he's going to investigate wine, alcoholic, beverages. Same as in 113, he's going to conduct his search now while guiding his heart with wisdom. So I want you to, I want you to put this in perspective. He, he was not just, um, it, this wasn't like a frat party, right? Chug, 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 chug. I mean, it wasn't like just do it to do it. He was strategically, intentionally investigating this with wisdom, you thought, how does wisdom fit into that? Well, it's human wisdom. He's still taking the knowledge that he's gaining, and he's he's applying it to these situations. This is what is so incredible, if you will, about Solomon's investigations. You know, you can talk to any drunk in the bar, and if he knows his passage, he goes, oh yeah, that's what I'm doing too. But no, not, not like Solomon did. Not like Solomon was doing. This was strategic. He was Almost like a, a chemist in a in a lab with a beaker. Okay, if I drink a little bit more, what's that make me do? And if I do a little bit more, what's that make me do? You know, and it's kind of like, whoa, okay, if I, you know, two, I need to shut down after two or maybe I can grab two and a half. And he's, he's, he's investigating all this. This is what we're seeing here um, in his words. And so even though this is a pleasure-filled pursuit with alcohol, he's attempting to do so while skillfully applying knowledge. Now, why did Solomon do this with wine? Why did he do this? Well, he tells us in verse three, he did it to gratify his flesh. Very interesting word there, gratify, because it means to drag, to pull, or to take away by considerable force. And you know, that is a, to me, that is a great picture of what the flesh still does in our life. Drags us away from Jesus Christ, drags us away from relying upon him, drags us into any human reliance strategy that it can convince us is what we need in the moment. And it just drags you away and seeks to dominate everything that you do from word to thought to action. That's what the flesh does. This is still what the flesh does. It it is a dragger. It, It will take you by the collar and yank you over here. Now, praise God Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have been severed from that automatic domination. You don't have to be dominated by sin's power anymore if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You can begin to reckon yourself dead to sin, alive unto God, and you can present your bodies now as instruments of righteousness to God and no longer present yourself to sin. You have that choice. You have that ability. You also have the ability to go on presenting yourself to sin, and sin will drag you And by the collar, away from the Lord, and we see the imagery that we um, see here. So Solomon literally, he wanted this wine to drag him into pleasure as a way of life to find meaning in life. And so he engaged in wine to take himself into experiencing this pleasure. He wanted to see what that impact, he wanted to measure that impact on meaning, purpose, Uh, leftovers, gain, profit, all those kind of things. And so uh, in a sense, again, it wasn't a frat party mentality. It was calculated. It was intentional. It was an investigation. So he strategically tried to understand if wine could bring this lasting meaning to life. Let's just look at that last phrase in verse three. It's this phrase holding on tightly. This is really his second surge. So verse three, he said, I search to my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom. And here's our second search, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their life. And so the second search is he wants to lay hold on folly. He wants to, to lay hold on this. Literally it means to, to grasp and never let go, to, to hold on. And, and do you ever feel that way with something that gives you pleasure? Don't you want to just Hold on to it and never let it go. Don't you want to just experience that thing that whatever that is that makes you happy and just hold on to that feeling? Um, Any any kid that's ever gone through Christmas knows that feeling, right? You just want to hold on to that Christmas feeling. You wake up, you're just fired up. I mean, you don't care. It's four o'clock in the morning. There's not a day the rest of the year that you'll wake up at four o'clock in the morning as a kid, but you'll do it on Christmas. You got no problem doing it, right? It's that that warm feeling. So he wanted to lay hold on this. He wanted to take hold, seize this object, never let it go. And in this case he wanted to do that with folly. Folly by definition means that which lacks prudence and wisdom, something that reveals a lack of understanding. And again, this was a thorough inquiry. He investigated, he investigated all the potential merits of folly. This is what he wanted to do. He wanted to hold on to that and see if this also could provide a uh, some meaning in life. Now the word folly here is probably synonymous with what he, we was just talking about. Probably goes with this gratifying uh, his flesh with mine. There's a lot of frivolous entertainment that's associated with alcohol, dancing, singing, uh, karaoke, right? All sorts of things. So this is kind of frivolous type of stuff that he's talking about here. And He say, well, maybe maybe if I hold on to this, this will provide meaning. And lasting purpose in life. Why does he do this search? Well, notice what he says. Again, this isn't just, hey, Solomon's going out to party to have a good time. He's actually trying to investigate this to give us the report back. He's giving his own people this report in the book of Ecclesiastes, but we gain the benefit of it as well. In fact, look at the very last phrase in verse three. He says, and how to lay hold on folly when, until when? Till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives? And now he's thinking about other people. His investigation, he wants to give people the results so he can tell them, okay, guys, these are six dead-end dead end streets, but this is the right one. The problem is, is all the streets that he investigates under the sun are all dead-end streets. And then he's going to say, you know what, guys, the right one is, do, what, do whatever it is you, you're going to do in life, but do it to the glory of God that's the point. Obviously do whatever you do to the glory of God. That's not sinful. I mean, that's, that's a caveat, but, but whatever you pursue, do it to the glory of God, do it in conjunction uh, with being in fellowship with the Lord. That's the most important thing. And so as we conclude um, this morning, he's going to continue Solomon the next time we meet to disillusion us from anything outside of fellowship with the Lord as purpose and meaning in life. He's just gonna keep doing. Hang on in there if you're getting depressed. It gets encouraging here soon, okay? It's a little bit depressing for a little bit longer, but let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word this morning. Just just rejoice that you desire to communicate to us, Lord, that you don't just save us from a hell that we deserve to a heaven that we don't. Through the finished work of your Son, but you actually desire that we might lead and live an abundant life while here, uh, awaiting that day of reunion with you. And Lord, we just we just want to we just so desire to walk in light of these truths and to to learn exactly how this looks for each one of us in our daily life, where we all live different lives. Lord, you've wired each one of us differently. You've gifted us differently we think differently. We all have different backgrounds. We, but we come to your word and there's a consistency in your word. We know that the answer for each one of us is there and contained therein. Lord, whatever we stand in need of today to be convinced of in our own thinking, would you do that work for each one that is listening? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.